Welcome back, everybody. It's CFB Winning Edge, the podcast edition. I'm your host, Scott Bogman. Follow me on the Twitter at Bogman Sports. I'm joined, as always, by the owner and proprietor of CFB Winning Edge, Nicholas Ian Allen. Follow him on the Twitter at CFB Winning Edge and Xavier Trish at Xavier underscore Trish, T-R-I-C-H-E on the Twitter machine. And uh, today on the show, we're going to be talking about the teams from 80 to 71, continuing our team preview series. We did have a little bit of news before we hit the teams. The first bit is Southern Miss linebacker Hayes Maples will reportedly miss the 2022 season, according to Scott Watkins of the Sun-Herald. The Eagles ranked number three overall in defense uh, and defensively in returning production before Maples' injury last week. USM, which also ranked number 30 among linebacker units in our position rankings, now ranks 11th in defensive returning production without the 92-rated player, second-highest rating on the roster. So a big hit for Southern Miss. And then just following up on Ania Smith from last week, the uh, Texas A&M wide receiver has been reinstated to the football team following a short suspension. So uh, luckily he is back, adds another weapon to the Aggies offense, which is a very, very prized piece for them. So uh, bad news for Southern Miss, good news for AM here, Nick. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, it's it's hard to kind of put a number exactly on how much impact one really, really good linebacker will have on a defense. And it is, even without him, a, a you know very experienced unit, borderline top 10 and returning production. But Southern Miss was a team we're expecting to take a pretty big jump. Didn't win very many games last year, finished with a little bit of momentum and, and seemed to be, you know, a little bit of a buzzy team in a new conference um, starting out. So this is definitely a blow to them, but uh, not sure it's going to have a major impact on our projections, expectations, things like that just sort of uh, hurts a little bit to, to lose one of your best players for sure. Um, Ania Smith, you know, not sure exactly uh, how everything played out. Sounds like, you know, we had heard some rumors right when we were ready to record last week that, Maybe the charges would get dropped. It sounds like that is what happened. Uh, so he seems to be back. All seems to be good, you know, for him legally. Not sure that this will impact his availability at all early in the year. I guess it's still possible, but uh, I didn't necessarily expect he would miss more than maybe a couple of games if, if you know, everything ran its course. So I uh, would expect Smith to be back for basically the entire season uh, at this point. And as we talked about last week, pretty, pretty, uh, you know, big impact, a future NFL player, I would say. So uh, certainly from the uh, football perspective, nice to have him back if you're a Texas A&M fan. Yeah, Xavier, like we said, good news for the Aggies getting their piece back. Just brutal blow uh, for USM, though. What do you think? Yeah, no, it's huge for I mean, absolutely massive. I talked about how much I thought he was going to explode this year and how much of a fixture of the offense I thought he would have to be for them to, uh, to you know, reach the, you know, especially with new quarterbacks, having, you know, as many skilled position guys as you can to come back is huge. Um, Nick, has any of these uh, injuries, excuse me, changed the numbers on the teams that we're talk- are talking about at all? Um, so they missed it, it dropped them at all. It dropped them a little bit, but okay. not more than just a few percentage points per uh, game. So, like, if they were expected to 
you know, had like a 57% chance of winning a single game uh, that might've fallen to 55%. So it kind of knocked, um, you know, maybe point one point two wins off the total win total. So nothing major just because it's not, you know, a quarterback or, or uh, a single player that, that makes up a huge percentage of the, you know, roster strength rating or things like that. Uh, it has an impact, but not one that's going to, be you know oh now all of a sudden we expect them to you know lose a, a you know one or two more games something like that uh so unless we see a a highly rated quarterback um who there's basically you know nothing behind them um that's going to be the the injury at this point that's probably going to have uh, that sort of impact where we would see a complete change in our win total projection Gotcha. So other than other than a quarterback, there's no one single position that could drastically affect a win total at this point. If it were a if it were a group of five team, um, maybe uh, you know, and and we actually running back counts less as a single position uh, than just about anything else in our projections. But running back, you know, we only count one starter for almost every sure. team. So if so, if a team lost a maximum rated player and then goes down to like to a like walk-on a, level player, yeah, yeah. that that might have a, an impact. Um, but for a unit like you know linebacker or, or offensive or defensive line or even you know second, I mean, there's there's three starters uh, or more in those units, so it it kind of gets. Um, one single player, even if they are kind of an outlier as far as their high-end uh, rating, probably isn't going to have a major impact unless it is. I mean, you know, this is about as highly rated as you can get guy in the 90s for a, uh, well, for a Sunbelt team now. I mean, um, so there's a little bit of a drop-off there, but that was a pretty strong unit to begin with. Um, and there are other decently rated players uh, in that linebacker core, so it's not going to have quite as big of an impact. All right, let's go on to the team previews starting today at number 80. Uh, and that is Louisiana. Louisiana lost to Texas in week one, but then ripped off 13 straight wins, including a 24, 16 over app state in the Sunbelt championship game and 36, 21 over new conference rival Marshall in the new Orleans bowl. DK has got their win total this season at eight and a half. Uh, their final projection for us, though, is seven and five. So we are under that eight and a half total. And the big question here, Nick, is after four successful seasons, including three 10 win campaigns, Billy Napier finally left Lafayette for a bigger stage uh, going to Florida. Can former Raging Cajuns QB and longtime assistant Michael DeSormu uh, keep Louisiana in the Sun Belt title hunt in his first season as a head coach here? Well, so we we expect a, a pretty big drop off. This is one of the bigger, um, probably downward movement, you know, in our rankings uh, sort of teams that that we've seen at least so far this year, and may see you know throughout 131 teams uh, because Billy Napier obviously had built um, a very very strong program, had raised his head coaching rating based on those, uh, you know, years of team performance ratings that he built up as Louisiana was, you know, top 40, top 30 type team in our power ratings. I mean, a top 25 team, uh, you know, in the national rankings, um, 13 and one 
obviously very, very successful. And to go from that to a first-time head coach, uh, even though he is someone who's promoted from within, so there is a little bit of consistency there, the way our numbers you know, capture that, Billy Napier had a, a head coach rating in the upper 80s. Uh, we're going down to a 70 because it's just not you know, proven. So there will be a, a, uh, a little bit of a hit to the overall team strength uh, power rating because of that. But also Louisiana has had you know, some, some relatively significant uh, turnover on the roster. Uh, they do still rank you know, 51st overall in returning production, 72nd on offense, 40th on defense, but lost some players who had eligibility to the transfer portal, uh, you know, a few of which ended up following Napier to Florida. That's, you know, Osiris Vance, the uh, long-term starter offensive lineman, uh, Montreal Johnson kind of, you know, broke out as a true freshman last year as a running back. They also lost players to TCU, LSU, uh, you know, Kansas, Texas state. So there were some players who, you know, could have stuck around, uh, decided to leave, but then also other guys as, you know, every team suffers personnel losses, but a 42 game starter at quarterback in Levi Lewis, uh, three offensive linemen, uh, who had started, uh, 37 or more games. Um, I mean, just really, really experienced guys on both sides of the ball. I mean, there's, you know, looking at, at Taylor Humphrey had 31 starts at nose tackle. Uh, two linebackers, Chancey Manack and Farad Gardner, 31 starts and 35 starts, respectively. Percy Butler uh, was a fourth-round draft pick, like Max Mitchell, one of those offensive linemen. Uh, he started 32 games at safety. So there were some really talented players who ran out of eligibility, pursued pro uh, football, or decided to you know, transfer elsewhere, in most cases, to the Power 5 level. So uh, there's a pretty big drop-off. And, uh, you know, maybe the, the biggest overall impact actually isn't at head coach, uh, but it's probably a quarterback because Levi Lewis was, like I mentioned, very, very experienced, um, ended up, you know, building his rating into the 90s. Uh, but the guys who are competing to uh, take over, looks like Chandler Fields and Ben Wooldridge are kind of the, the you know, top two options there right now. I've also heard some really, really, uh, you know, high praise for a true freshman they've got coming in, Zion Chris, but not sure he'll be ready right, right away. It sounds like Fields or Wooldridge, at least to start. But those guys are, you know, very, very inexperienced. They've got combined in the last two years, 60 snaps between them, zero career starts. Um, and Wooldridge was a you know, walk on when he transferred in from Fresno State. So uh, we're expecting a bit of a drop off there at quarterback, not to mention there was a hit at pretty much every other position. But as we've said, you know, plenty of times before, the Sunbelt West is wide open. And I think part of that is Louisiana's got a bit of a drop off, but also Louisiana is our highest rated, you know, Sunbelt West team. Um, they are absolutely going to be in the mix. On the you know in that division, certainly could get back to uh, the Sun Belt Championship, but I don't necessarily expect this team to you know repeat another ten win season or another undefeated 
conference run. I, I think that if they were to get back to that title game, it's going to be with, you know, maybe even multiple losses in the Sun Belt. It just seems like the the changeover at personnel or, you know, personnel wise on the roster, but also on the coaching staff. Uh, I think we're just naturally going to see a little bit of a step back an eight and a half win total. I mean, obviously the odds makers expect that as well. Um, even though we do have Louisiana actually favored in 10 games, a lot of those are, uh, you know, coin flips basically, or, or just really, really um, tight projected point spreads. It looks like every single one of those games against an FBS opponent uh excuse me with the exception of one so uh there's only one game against an fbs opponent that louisiana is favored by double digits everything else is you know nine points or less and and most of those are within a touchdown so they're going to be a lot of competitive games when you have a first time first year head coach um you know i kind of lean toward uh, lower expectations in those really, really tight matchups. Xavier, your thoughts on Louisiana seems like the perfect storm of, you know, switching over personnel to switching right. over coaching staff just adds up for not a good start here for Louisiana. Yeah. And to be perfectly honest with you, even though I agree with Nick about their possible finish in the Sunbelt West, it's only because it's the Sunbelt West that I genuinely think that they could compete in that side of the in that side of the conference, I just feel like the rest of the the Sun Belt West has been so poor at times. Uh, last year, when you look at it, they were the only team to finish above 500 in the entire division. Uh, this year, even though I do see a jump from South Alabama and maybe an improvement from Texas State, I still don't expect much competition for Louisiana, even with the drop off and the in the transfers out of that university. Uh, so I do still think Louisiana will be able to compete for the Sun Belt on their side of the conference, just because of the fact that the, that the Sun Belt West is uh, has been so porous. Um, I will say this though, they uh, they have lost so much talent, and I, and I don't know even if they do finish, you know, winning the the Sun Belt West. In the grand scheme of the conference, they still might be a team that finishes third or fourth overall in the conference. Um, I think when you look at the Sun Belt East, we're just going to expect more of a jump from guys like Georgia State. Uh, App State's always going to be up there, and whether or not Coastal Carolina can also handle their own, you know, uh, exodus of, of talent, maybe they'll be a team that's better than Louisiana as well. Uh, luckily for Louisiana, they don't get any of those guys that I just mentioned. Uh, they're able to avoid all three of them, which is great for them in this year, as they're definitely going to need to have more, I, I won't call them cupcake games, but they'll definitely need it. Uh, now, I will say, I'm excited to see them have to play some of the new guys. So them going to Marshall right after their bye week will be fun. Uh, it's definitely going to be a fun game uh, to kind of get a barometer for not only Louisiana in their current state and what they're going to be doing going forward, but also for what Marshall will look like in the Sun Belt. Um, I'm excited to see what they do under the new regime. Uh, I felt like, uh, you know, Napier had it rolling over there. And to be perfectly honest with you, as a Georgia State alumni, I'm ecstatic to see him go to Florida. Uh, I think most of the Sun Belt was because Louisiana slowly but surely was starting to turn to the the, the app state of the, uh, the Sun Belt West. And uh, that was going to get ugly if they continued to go on this run. Uh, I'm not saying it's over, but I'm saying it definitely took a hit with all the time that they lost one, him leaving two. And obviously they, I don't think they, they did as well as they probably should have in the transfer portal uh, to bring those guys back uh, or to get some of that talent back. You know, they had an 156 transfer rating according to 247. 
that's not great. They only brought in one transfer total. Um, James uh, Ahunba from Michigan State, an offensive lineman. So maybe he's coming in to take Osiris's position uh, now that he's off to Florida. But I just feel like they didn't move with the kind of urgency you needed to for a team that feels like they need to stay atop the Sun Belt as a whole and not just their division. Um, this is a team that when you look at their win-loss record or when you look at the projected wins, I think going with the under is just the more comfortable situation. Yes, this is a team that could easily win nine games with the Sun Belt West being what it, what it has been. But without understanding what they even are at the quarterback position as of right now, and, you know, everybody's going to talk about the talent that they lost this year, but they lost a ton of talent the year before that, right? Elijah Mitchell, you know, currently a running back for the San Francisco 49ers, was a part of a two-headed monster over there with Trey Regis. They lost a ton of talent over the last two years. And so I don't know if they're going to be able to bounce back from all of that talent loss in one year. They have an eight-and-a-half win total. I'm going to go under, and I feel really comfortable about that because even with an eight-win season next year, they still might make the Sun Belt, the Sun Belt Championship game, just to be perfectly honest with you. I think eight wins could get it done in the Sun Belt West, and that's perfectly fine by me. I think that's where I'm comfortable with. Uh, we go over to 79, Georgia Southern. Uh, Georgia Southern started at 1-3. and three. They fired head coach Chad Lunsford, but struggled to find a QB all year, which played a role in the Eagles slumping to an uncharacteristic 3-9 and nine record, 2-6 uh, and six in the conference. DK's got their win total at a low 4.5. We have them at six and six, so uh, we are uh, over on this total. Now, the question here for Georgia Southern, Nick, is new head coach Clay Helton is drawing from his brother's offense, at, offensive staff at WKU, which means the Eagles will look very different offensively in 2022. Will the expected pass-heavy offense help Georgia Southern rebound from last year's disappointment, or are they going to be on the struggle bus trying to go to this pass-heavy offense in year one. What do you think, Nick? Uh, I think Georgia Southern is is going to be pretty difficult to project because, you know, for a long time, uh, they've been operating out of a option-based offense. And, and, you know, in the last few years, it hasn't been exactly the uh, traditional triple option that we saw for decades in Statesboro, but it was still, you know, very much a, an option offense, a high percentage of runs and they're going in the complete opposite direction. And, you know, we talked, was it last week or, or not long ago about Georgia tech who moved from a traditional triple option offense. And that's been one of the excuses in their rebuild you know, why it's taken so long is, oh, we've got to, you know, recruit a different type of offensive lineman. We've got a, uh, you know, the, the switch is just, uh, it, it's a very difficult one to make. But I feel like Georgia Southern has kind of set itself up to make a much quicker transition. And I think the, you know, being in the Sun Belt, though it is uh, tough and, and even more, you know, competitive now than it was. Uh, even last year when they showed a, a lot of growth uh, because of the new additions, I feel like, you know, the transfer portal being what it is and kind of taking a page out of what Western Kentucky did last year, uh, who we'll talk about later in the show, you know, Georgia Southern's going to be able to, to remake their offense uh, a good bit quicker, I think. And, you know, they brought in Calvin Trees to transfer from Buffalo to play quarterback. He's 
you know, not uh, immobile, but he is more of a pocket passer, certainly than they've had recently. They've had, you know, guys who are quite athletic, who go out and, and are uh, mostly looking to run first. They did bring in a pretty high profile transfer in Jeremy Singleton as a wide receiver who gives them somebody who's, uh, you know, played a lot of football at a winning program, Houston, um, 29 starts. He's been productive. They have kind of a, you know, Swiss army knife type guy in Amari Jones, who's been a running back in the past, actually played quarterback some last year for Georgia Southern, but is looking like he's going to be a wide receiver full time. Other you know receivers and tight ends who have experience, even though they didn't catch a whole lot of passes, seems like that is actually a unit you know that's that's a little bit of a strength. Um, they have had some depth at running back, even though unfortunately we learned, uh, I believe it was just last week, that JD King uh, was forced to retire for medical reasons. He and Logan Wright, uh, the top running backs, um, the last you know two years mostly. Um, are gone, but they still do have Gerald Green, Jalen White brought in a four-star freshman and Terrence Gibbs. Um, so there, there are some playmakers. Uh, there's also, even though it's a smaller, quicker offensive line, uh, four starters return from a unit that was not great, but you know, not terrible either. They did only rank 98th in our O-line performance ratings, um, but still, you know, really experienced unit over 130 starts combined. I think offensively, they are going to be able to show a lot of progress and, and actually kind of um, build, you know, maybe a dangerous unit pretty quickly. Uh, defensively, with the exception of the secondary, which I think actually improves a good bit in part because they lost so many guys to injury last year. Derek Canteen only played 68 snaps. Uh, Tyler Bride missed time. Najee Thompson missed time. Deontay Bembry. Um, you know, those are guys who are either starters or, or in the two deep. Uh, plus, that was a, a, an area in which they really hit the transfer portal hard as well. Um, so other than that unit, which is a little bit, you know, uh, probably should be a strength. At least it looks like a strength on paper. There, there are some concerns kind of in the front seven. They do have Justin Ellis and Dylan Springer back, uh, returning starters, guys who've been productive, but they are a little thin in the interior of the defensive line, and they're just not, you know, very experienced just in the in the grand scheme of things uh, at linebacker. They did play a lot of linebackers last year. Um, I mean, it looks like eight guys got 90 snaps or more. Seven of those had 100 snaps or more, but no one played – you know, more than 309 snaps. So it's, it's, they got their feet wet, but they're, you know, aren't any super highly rated guys, not a whole lot of production coming back from last year's unit in that front seven. That makes me a little bit nervous because, you know, a team like we were just talking about Louisiana has been a, a run first team. They bring back Chris Smith. And even though that offensive line has got a lot of turnover, um, they're, you know, still, I think, going to rely on running the football. Marshall and Rashin Ali, who they play late in the season, one of the, you know, top rushers in college football last year. Appalachian State, our tribal, is uh, consistently, you know, a team that runs the football really, really well. Uh, Georgia State, another another big-time rival, 
can run the football. It's it's a little bit of a problem, uh, and at least it looks like it right now. You know, how well this, is this team going to be able to defend? So even though I think the offense and, you know, they're going to be moving at a faster play, pace, they're going to be throwing the ball a lot more, which also means more uh, incompletions and the clock stopping more, you know, these Georgia Southern games are going to be much different and they are probably going to play, you know, a lot more shootouts maybe than, than we've been used to seeing. It, it's just going to be, you know, will that offense actually take that Western Kentucky type step and become very, very explosive? Or will there be a little bit of, you know, time where the transition from a very, very different style uh, takes a little bit of time. I, I kind of lean toward the the former. I I, I am pretty confident, uh, or at least you know what Western Kentucky did last year made me think that it's a a repeatable process in Georgia Southern. I mean Tyson Helton, head coach of Western Kentucky, his brother Tyler Helton, or excuse me, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, uh, Clay Helton, Clay Helton. Uh, new head coach at, at Georgia Southern, uh, brought in a Western Kentucky offensive staff, basically guys who were part of that, um, you know, high fly record breaking offense uh, last year. So I feel like they'll be able to get up to speed relatively quickly. The early schedule, you know, games against Nebraska and UAB are certainly going to be tough on the road. But I think that first game against Morgan State, you know, they're going to put up a big, big number, build some confidence. And then hopefully, you know, by the end of non-conference play where they're playing Ball State, leading into uh, some pretty big Sunbelt games, I think they're going to be a pretty competitive team. So uh, our projection might be a little high. You know, I mean, we we project over six wins and the, the number, as you mentioned, from DraftKings is four and a half. That probably seems a little bit uh too confident but i do think that you know this team is going to show improvement in the win column and i think five wins is certainly um a reasonable expectation and and bowl eligibility you know isn't uh isn't crazy either it certainly could happen xavier your thoughts on georgia southern here i mean you know a lot like uh louisiana it's just a whole changeover in coaching staff. So it's just a lot to ask a team moving this way to succeed year one, right? Oh, absolutely. And as optimistic as Nick was, I'm not going to be that. I'm sorry. Uh, I, I think that this team will get to a point where they'll be able to compete in the Sun Belt. I just don't think it'll be next year. Not only do you have a ton of turnover from a personnel situation, also from a coaching staff situation where, you know, now – you're essentially forcing kids that I won't say forcing, but you're asking kids who were asked to one run one system. Now, all of a sudden play a completely different style. You know, that that changes from top to bottom from even the way that the offensive line has to play now. Uh, and also their schedule is daunting. It's just their schedule is really difficult. Not only do they play in the Sunbelt East, not only do they have to go to Nebraska and UAB in their non-conference, but then you start your Sunbelt schedule with at Coastal and at Georgia State, which might be the two biggest games of the year for them. You also finish your year off with at Louisiana, Marshall, and App State. That's five games right there that I just think are, if, if not guaranteed losses, definitely leaning towards that. 
So we're talking about, I don't believe they'll beat Nebraska. I don't believe they'll beat UAB. I don't think they'll beat Georgia State, App State, Marshall. We'll have to see what Louisiana looks like at the end of the year, but that game's on the road, so I think Louisiana will play pretty well. And then at Coastal. It's a ton of games that I just don't feel like, don't feel comfortable with leaning on the Georgia Southern side. And that's not me being biased going to Georgia State at all. I just don't see them being able to compete against those teams. I haven't even named James Madison, who's also added to the East this year. Um, and I do believe South Alabama will just be a, a scrappy team at the time in which they meet them. South Alabama typically finishes the seasons, the seasons pretty well, uh, and, they, and they see them November 5th. So I just feel like when I look at Georgia Southern, this feels very three to four win team. Uh, to be perfectly honest with you, it feels like a team that's going to you know, use this year to understand the offense, learn the system under Clay Hilton, and that's what they're going to do. They're not going to come in trying to compete at a, at a terribly high level. Uh, unlike Louisiana, though, they did hit the transfer portal pretty hard, bringing in 11 transfers. Not only did they bring in uh, Van Treese, they also brought in Kyle Toole, uh, who played at Troy. Uh, they brought in, you know, uh, some other guys who I really like. I, I, he mentioned Jeremy Singleton. Um, I also like Christian Warner from, uh, from North Carolina. Uh, so my only question is, and Nick, you might be able to tell me that, on 247, Jeremy Singleton isn't an immediate. Uh, so he only has one year of eligibility remaining. I would so assume, should be. I would assume he is a grad transfer. Uh, I believe he participated in the spring. Uh, I I am assuming he is good to okay. go. That's what uh, I was assuming too. But, you know, I mean, I guess uh maybe they just don't have you know maybe maybe for whatever reason they didn't click that box or check that box that that said immediate but right. i haven't read or seen anything to indicate that he wouldn't be immediately eligible fair enough i was just making sure because that might be a typo on 247's part just want to make sure that he's actually going to be playing this year because if he's not that would be a big hit for them yeah definitely always good to check yeah um <laughs> i think it's funny and this is just me, you know, uh, covering for for, for this. Uh, they're, one of their highest recruits on the transfer portal this year was a kicker, Michael Lance out of uh, Minnesota. They're bringing in. So hey, this has been a school. And Scott, you're looking at me with those, with that face. This has been a school that produces kickers. We all know who Young Way Koo is in the NFL. This is a team that has produced NFL kickers before. So just putting that out there. Uh, but no, back to the t win total. I will be comfortable saying four wins. That would be under their four and a half win projection. Uh, or their win total, excuse me, I'm comfortable saying under. I just don't know what they'll look like under Helton in year one. I just feel like it's going to look really sloppy out there. We've kind of seen somewhat of this with, with, with Jeff Collins. It'll be less of that. It'll be at a, low, uh, a, le a lower sca a scale than that, but I still think it's going to be uh, a pretty poor year for them as far as winning is concerned. All right, let's go over to number 78 here, East Carolina. ECU started 0-2 last year, but won seven of its next nine games, losing by one possession of both UCF and Houston to qualify for a bowl game for the first time since 2014. But unfortunately, their bowl game was canceled, the military bowl versus BC. I believe BC had some COVID issues at that point. DK's win total, six and a half. We've got them at six and six, so we're under the six and a half here, Nick. Uh, the question is, is the Pirates finally broke through last season and return a solid nucleus of players on both sides of the ball? Why do our projections expect ECU to take a step back instead of building on its success in 2021, Nick? I think the, the easiest way to answer that, and that was you know a question that come to came to my mind when I looked at 
you know, obviously uh, a team bringing back a very, very experienced quarterback. Holton Aylers hasn't been uh, super consistent throughout his career, but has had some pretty high highs and has been productive, started 37 games. Both running backs, Keaton Mitchell and Rajay Harris, uh, you know, entering their third year in the program. Both have been all conference performers at different times. Keaton Mitchell is one of the fastest running backs in college football. Uh, the, you know, offensive line returns three starters. The defense, which took a pretty big step forward, um, you know, two years ago from uh, 2019 to 2020, when it was 120th in our defensive team performance uh, ratings and then 2020 they were 86. They still took another small step forward last year. So it's it's worked into um, you know East Carolina was 78th in defensive team performance. It's it's a unit that is moving in the right direction. The wins have come slowly, uh, but you know why why wouldn't we think that that or why wouldn't the numbers line up to expect? this team to continue to inch up um, those rankings and, and, you know, keep adding to uh, its potential win total, maybe becoming a, a conference title contender. I, I think we might be a little low on East Carolina, but if I were to, you know, look and, and think about how I know that the numbers are calculated, there are, you know, pretty, pretty much two uh, main reasons. One, we don't just look at, Last year, it does. Uh, when we look at our team performance projections, last year's results are you know the biggest piece of the puzzle. However, they do also take into account you know the two years prior to that, and East Carolina just wasn't very good. Um, so when a team kind of jumps up, takes a a big step forward, we are relatively hesitant, at least the way we calculate things to expect that to continue. We more so look at the last three years kind of as uh, almost as, as a uh, whole and say, Oh, well, two out of those three were pretty bad. That's probably the more likely outcome. So, you know, they certainly do get a boost because last year was uh, quite good, but you know, team performance wise, we, we kind of temper those expectations a little bit um, because it's a, not a complete outlier, but, you know, last year was not like the two years prior to that. And, and you know, if we were looking farther down the line, East Carolina, as you mentioned, first time they went uh, or had reached bowl eligibility, had a winning record since 2014. So one year out of however many, it's not crazy to expect that, you know, maybe they actually don't continue to build. The other reason, when we look at returning production, the biggest offensive uh, position group that that matters other than quarterback, which of course, as I mentioned, Aylers, uh being back is is certainly significant. But they've got a lot of turnover at receiver. Um, they lost Tyler Sneed, who's been a big time, you know, uh, productive, very experienced player. Um, Adi Amatosho also ran out of eligibility after last year. He was a starter, and then one of their more talented. Uh, he's, he's kind of underperformed a little bit since his true freshman year, but CJ Johnson currently, you know, we can't list among the starters, uh, because he's been suspended indefinitely still on the roster. Not exactly sure, you know, what impact, when he'll be able to get back on the field or not, but, 
um, they're without him as well. So even though they brought in some guys like Isaiah Winstead from Toledo, Jalen Johnson, Jared Garner, and we do expect them to you know have an impact and the tight end position is pretty strong, that loss of receiver production is a bit of a hit as well. That's a, a pretty big piece of that returning production puzzle. So, you know, personally, I understand the expectation that East Carolina will, you know, be just as good as they were last year, if not better. The numbers are a little bit more hesitant. And then also the non-conference schedule is really tough. I mean, they play NC State, who's, you know, the hot team in the ACC uh, to open. They play Old Dominion, who, you know, not the the biggest, uh, you know, heavyweight, but a team that went bowling last year as well, enters with some momentum. They play BYU on the road uh, in October. And then they, you know, face a pretty tough slate of uh, AAC teams. They have to play at Cincinnati. They host Houston. Um, they, you know, play Memphis. It, it's UCF. Those games are back-to-back, even though three out of four of them are at home. I mean, that's a pretty brutal stretch starting October 15th, where they host Memphis, host UCF, go to BYU on a Friday night. Then they get a week off, go to Cincinnati on a Friday night, and host Houston. I mean, that's that's just a really, really tough uh, schedule. So it is one of those situations where, you know, this team might be just as good, maybe even a little better. You know, maybe they overperform our projections in team performance, uh, and actually, you know, put up numbers similar to last year, but their record, just because of the strength of the schedule, might not be quite as good. So, uh, even though I, I do think there's a lot to like about East Carolina, I'm kind of glad um, that we're under the six and a half. That we do still, you know, think getting to a bowl game is absolutely reasonable. Back-to-back bowl games would be a, a big, big step forward for this program. Um, but this team, you know, I think there are some reason there, there are some understandable reasons, uh, why this won't be a 10 win team, for example, when there might be some folks that think, uh, that that's kind of the next step is, is to take, uh, you know, a positive season last year and then try to make a run maybe, uh, at a conference title or, or, you know, uh, one of the best seasons they've seen in, a decade or more. I just, I think it, it certainly could happen, but I'm, I'm a little, uh, I feel like hedging a little bit on that and, and saying that a similar record, maybe even a small step back is probably the more, uh, expected outcome. Xavier, are you kind of, uh, in the middle on ECU as well? It kind of seemed like a tough team to figure out, or do you have a stronger stance one way or the other on them? Yeah, I'm with Nick. I, I think this is a team that will give you a similar record this year if maybe a step down just genuinely because of that that five-game stretch where they might lose all five. You know, like it's very well possible that you lose all five of those contests, um, as well as NC State at the beginning of the year. Like, would give them six losses. Obviously, that's more than they had last season. I just think that, you know, at, at this point, I'm more comfortable with saying that this is a 7-5 ball club, which would be under their 7.5, you know, projected win total. But Or, excuse me, it would be over their 6.5 projected win total. But in my opinion – this is a team that definitely got better with the transfer portal. So that is something I'm looking forward to seeing how that meshes uh, coming this year. They had a top, you know, top 60 transfer rating. They finished with a 58 transfer rating on 247. Uh, they brought in a lot of talent uh, from the P5 uh, with, with North Carolina, Duke, Georgia, 
being at West Virginia, also being in there as well. So I think that if the transfers then pan out, then obviously you're, then you're looking at maybe they do take that next step and they're able to roll off seven or eight wins in, 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 a, in a conference was, in, excuse me, in a conference that maybe has a little bit more flux at the top with Cincinnati losing so much talent, uh, but Houston's still going to be really good. I think UCF makes a bounce back year after what was kind of a disappointing year last year. Uh, BYU is always tough and having to go up to Pro Bowl is never easy. Uh, you know, Memphis is always one of those teams. That is kind of just when you catch Memphis, depending on what kind of Memphis you get. You know, they, they might beat you 56-34. You might also nip them 35 to 20, you know, 35 to 31. So I'm more comfortable saying that they get barely over and winning seven games and they exact and they finish with their exact same win total last year, versus me saying that this is going to be a team that takes that next step and is able to, you know, compete for their you know, compete for their conference championship. All right, let's go over to the next team up, number 77, we're headed into the SEC from Missouri. The Tigers wandered through an up and down 2021 season, never winning or losing more than two games in a row to post a six and seven record after a 24 uh, 22 loss to Army in the Armed Forces Bowl. DK's win total has them at five and a half. We have them at five and seven. So we're under that five and a half. Nick, the question for Missouri here is you know, a team that was reportedly interested in several high-rated transfer QBs in the offseason. I feel like every week, Missouri was in the rumors of potentially getting this quarterback, that quarterback, and it never really happened for them. Uh, they're going to enter the season with Brady Cook and Tyler Macon as the top two candidates to start at QB. So the question is, is will the Tigers' QB situation keep them from a bowl game this year, Nick? Uh, you know, I think it's – I think that it's the – biggest question mark and if Missouri fails to reach bowl eligibility it probably will be because uh, either they couldn't you know they didn't settle on a quarterback they couldn't find uh, you know the right guy and you know none of them sort of took that step forward Cook and Macon both had the opportunity to start games um, and didn't necessarily send a great sign when it seemed like oh yeah they're in the you know was it Emory Jones, JT Daniels, uh, or no, Jaden Daniels was JT, Jaden Daniels and JT Daniels were the two. I don't know if Jones was or not, but I, I remember they were, you know, kind of the, seemed like uh, maybe in the, the final two or three of the uh, most likely outcome. LSU was a surprise. Guys. It really looked like Jaden Daniels was going to Missouri for a little bit there. Right. Yeah. I remember that. And so not necessarily a great, you know, message to send, not only to Cook and Macon, that you're trying to bring in somebody to, to uh, take their job, um, but also the locker room, right? Because, you know, those reports get out and I'm sure the coaches were, you know, recruiting those players pretty heavily. Um, they actually did end up bringing in a transfer who does have some experience, Jack Abraham. It's been a while. He was a starter uh, at Southern Miss, had some, you know, quality uh, performances, I mean, started 27 games, uh, but missed uh, a chunk of the 2020 season, I believe, with injury. And then last year, after he had transferred to Mississippi State, didn't play at all, had an injury. So I'm not sure, it, you know, maybe he factors into this uh, quarterback situation. The, the one that I think if Missouri, you know, far surpasses our expectation, which is certainly possible. Um, you know, Missouri is, is the type of program that every once in a while 
can kind of capture lightning in a bottle and and uh, make a, a big step forward. I think it might be because uh, true freshman Sam Horn comes in, wins the job, and kind of sparks everything. Highly rated four-star recruit out of Georgia, uh, was also a highly rated baseball prospect who I'm not sure if he went completely undrafted. I know he wasn't drafted in the top 10 rounds, but uh, seems now because of that, you know, he wasn't going to be a a top uh, two or three round uh, pick and and then sign a professional contract. Seems pretty likely now that he's going to Missouri, will play baseball in addition to football, but, you know, might just have the raw talent to come in and win the job before the end of the season. Uh, so if he comes in and, and is able to do that, that could be the spark that, you know, Missouri uh, does, uh, you know, start to, to win some games that, that we didn't expect, start to really build some, you know, positive momentum because everything else, at least on offense, I really have no major concerns. You know, maybe the center position, although they did bring in a, a transfer, Vince Polgar from Buffalo, where, you know, he probably has a good chance to start. Uh, they addressed the running back position. Losing Tyler Beatty was was big. He had a, a huge, huge year last year. But they brought back a local product, Nathaniel Pete, who had you know some middling success at Stanford. Had dealt with some injuries, but has a lot of the you know same skills that Beatty had. You know can uh, contribute as a uh, receiver. Also, you know made some big plays for Stanford as a return man can run it a little bit too. Elijah Young got some work, uh, especially late in the year in the bowl game uh, when Beatty sat out. And then they brought in kind of a, a, well, two two other intriguing names. There's a lot of, you know, ways things could go right in, in the running back room there. But Cody Schrader is a transfer from the Division II Truman State, where he was the national rushing champ, uh, is a, you know, over 200 pounds, not sure he's going to beat out Pete or Young for the job, but you know I would expect we'll be able to carve out a role of some sort. I was on a uh, a CFF uh, draft show the other night with uh, Jared Palmgren uh, when he was doing a, a a live draft, and I mentioned Schrader, kind of compared him to uh, Clint Rakovic from Northern Illinois, who was just fullback, tight end, uh, you know did some stuff on special teams. Uh, maybe that's sort of a role that we end up seeing here. And, and, you know, Eli Drinkwitz, pretty creative play caller, uh, could potentially, you know, find a role for somebody who has played a lot of football, had a lot of success uh, in college. And then Tavoris Jones, another four-star recruit, uh, you know, 93-rated player according to 247 Sports. Maybe he has an impact as a true freshman. So I think they're going to be fine however things shake out at running back. Receiver, they bring back guys like Toski Dove. Uh, Dominic Lovett had a big spring. Barrett Bannister, very experienced. Mookie Cooper, the transfer from Ohio State, uh, finally healthy. But then also, of course, the big one, one of the you know highest-rated recruits in Missouri's history. I believe he was you know top-five recruit in the country. Luther Burden, true freshman, probably going to start at wide receiver. You know, they've got weapons, they've got talent, uh, and Drinkwitz, uh, you know, I respect among play callers, uh, you know, uh, he's one of my favorite play callers, you know, in the SEC and, and maybe in college football. He is, he's 
gets the most out of his players and I think uses them uh, in creative ways and, and puts them in position, you know, to be successful. So I do think that Missouri, if they get decent quarterback play will be a dangerous team. If they are able to develop, whether it's cook or Macon, if Abraham kind of recaptures some magic or if Sam Horn just comes in as just the best option and, you know, can take control of the job as a true freshman, then this Missouri team could be quite good and, and, you know, could certainly get back to a bowl game, might even make some noise, knock off some teams that nobody would expect. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of ifs in there and, and Xavier often uh, will count up my ifs. So I'm, I'm sure he's got, you know, sort of a, a, a ledger going there because this is a team that though it improved a lot in the second half of the season defensively after they made a change in defensive line uh, coaching um, still finished 104th in defensive team performance, 111th against the run. It's a major, major issue. And they weren't all that good against the pass either. Uh, finished 99th in, in passing defensive team performance. Lost some really talented players. Cornerback Caleb Evans was a fourth-round draft pick. Uh, Kyle Byers is in camp with the Green Bay Packers. Um, they also lost some talent to the transfer portal. In uh, Makai Wingo was somebody I was pretty excited about. Local guy transferred to LSU, probably going to make an impact there. Ish Burdine, you know, didn't play a ton last year, 124 snaps, but he's transferred to TCU. Sean Robinson looked like he, you know, was really coming into his own as a safety, uh, but he had hit the transfer portal again after suffering an injury last year and is at Kansas State. So, you know, there's there's a little bit of uh, concern defensively. They do have, you know, an all-conference defensive end in Trajan Jeffcoat. Isaiah McGuire might be the most underrated defensive lineman in the SEC. He was incredibly productive last year, um, but I haven't seen him on. I mean, I, I just happen to have the you know Phil Steele magazine here flipped open to his All Conference page. He's not on you know the first, second, third, or fourth team All Conference, um, but somebody that coming off the edge is is uh, certainly can make an impact. They hit the transfer portal hard on the interior defensive line. Got guys like Jaden Jernigan. Josh Landry, uh, Christian Williams, DJ Coleman, um, Ian Matthews. They also get some guys coming back from injury at linebacker. You know, Devin Nicholson is back. He may or may not actually end up starting, even though he's a returning starter, because they got Tyron Hopper, Tyrone Hopper, uh, Chad Bailey, and Charles Hicks. All those guys are in the mix to start at linebacker. So there's there's a lot of moving pieces. Um Ennis Rakeshaw is back from injury last year that cost him some time. And then the, you know, starting safeties and nickelback, Jalen Carley's Martez Manuel, who was, you know, playing at an all SEC type level, uh, in my opinion, Chris Abrams drain, who has an impact in a variety of ways, also highly productive. All three of those guys are back, but still, you know, uh, that that's the, the ball, the side of the ball, excuse me, that I've got the most, hesitation to say it's going to be fine. I think they'll figure it out on offense with a good quarterback or not. If they do get a, you know, solid quarterback play, they're going to be a really, really interesting team, a really dangerous team. Uh, but I'm, I'm less confident that they're going to figure it out and, and be a top half of the sec defense. And that's probably what they're going to need to, you know, 
other than the quarterback play to vastly overachieve because we've got them projected, uh, you know, as, as touchdown underdogs or, you know, low double digit underdogs in games that you would expect they're going to have to win to get back to a bowl games like Arkansas, Kentucky, South Carolina, um, you know, Kansas state Gotta get one of them on the road. Yeah. Yeah. You're going to have to win more of those than you lose if you're Missouri and then just cannot slip up against Louisiana tech, which that's going to be a pretty interesting one. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and say, uh, you know, against a rebuilding Florida team on the road against Kentucky, who is beatable, but you know, still a, a very much a team that's going to be uh, difficult to beat in the sec, similar to Tennessee, you know, there, there are a lot of winnable games on the schedule for Missouri, but they cannot afford a, a loss as a favorite. Um, and they, you know, just can't let opportunities slip away in those winnable games. So I, I just feel like my confidence level is is relatively low for Missouri to um, – I mean, it's just, it's just going to be tough. Yeah, they could scrape and claw and get back to a bowl game like they did last year. I certainly think that's possible. Um, but there's just, you know, some personnel questions and then some schedule questions that make me think that, uh, bowl eligibility might be the ceiling seven, eight wins at the max, uh, for this team. It just seems like a relatively, you know, relatively low ceiling team, uh, the way things are shaking out right now. Xavier, your thoughts on Missouri. Are, are you, uh, you're in agreement here. This is a, Low ceiling team. It's tough to win these SEC games, man. Yeah, I mean, it comes down to what it typically comes down for them. What's the quarterback situation? You know, over the time that Missouri's been in the SEC, they've had some explosive offenses, right? We all remember Drew Locke and those guys. We all remember what you know, uh, Dorio Green, Beckham, and, and company. But more than, but more than anything, it's been whether or not they have a quarterback who actually can stretch the field. When they have that, typically they're able to cause a lot of teams in the SEC headaches. Uh, even when they had, uh, oh my gosh, Maddie Mock, you know, just were able to, yeah, just were able to, you know, give a lot of teams in the SEC headaches because they were able to stretch the field and make, you know, and play more of that quote unquote big 12 style that they came with, uh, you know, when, when they came to the SEC in the first place, that'll be dependent on whether or not they can figure out the quarterback situation at the beginning of the year. I'm going to be honest with you, Nick, I think Sam Horn comes right in and has a really good chance of getting that starting position. Um, I, I think that when you look at the quarterback situation, it's not set in stone. I think when you don't have a quarterback coming out of spring, all bets are off. When you have a four-star kid coming in, um, who's you know going to be more of a is more of a, a, a future choice if Drinkwitz were to go with him and allow him to kind of ride it out his freshman year. Um, when but when you've got a guy like Luther Burden on the outside, listen, that kid is an animal. Luther Burden, for all intents and purposes, was the best receiver in the country. He finished top three in the uh, total, according to 247. Obviously, he was the best player in the state of, in the state of Illinois, but he is an animal. And he's going to cause a lot of teams issues just from him being on the field alone. Uh, you know, Missouri had a really good recruiting class this year, finished 18th in the country. That's one of their highest finishes uh, ever. Uh, it's the highest finish, I believe, for Drinkwitz as well. They finished 22nd in the transfer rating as well, which was really good for them. I love some of the additions that they made. I, I love Tyron Hopper from, from Florida. Uh, I love the fact that they decided to go get, you know, SEC uh, corners and Drayden Norwood uh, from Texas A&M, who was a four-star coming out of high school. Uh, Joseph Charleston out of uh, – 
Clemson, another four-star DB out of high school. So this, this is going to be a talented bunch. Uh, that's never been Missouri's t- uh, problem. It typically falls on their quarterback situation. And, and I know that makes it sound very simplified and, and everything like that, but this is a team that over the last couple of years with just Tyler Beatty back there has been pretty one-dimensional. It was like you stop Tyler Beatty, you stop Missouri. Um, and, you know, whenever they've had just an inkling of dynamicism from their from their quarterback room, they're a team that can win, you know, seven, you know, seven plus games. And at the very least, they're going to ruin somebody's season. You know, that's something that Missouri typically is going to do if they have an offense that can do so. And, you know, uh, so I, I expect them to be a, you know, right around six win ball club this year. Even if Sam Horn is the starter, he's going to have some growing pains in the conference. Uh, but I do believe that this is a team that, you know, Drinkwitz is getting in the right direction. You know, when you finish with a top 20 recruiting class, I know it's an SEC team, but when you're doing it at Missouri, that's very impressive. Their schedule is daunting, but if they're able to navigate those first three games, Louisiana Tech, Kansas State, Abilene Christian, if they finish 3-0 out of that, there's no way that they shouldn't be able to make a bowl game. Uh, they're going to beat Vandy. That's four. They're going to beat New Mexico State. That's five. Then you just got to find one SEC. Then you got to find one of the SEC win, whether that's outside, at South Carolina, whether maybe, heck, maybe they upset Auburn early in the year. Maybe you catch Auburn sleeping. Maybe they haven't come around just yet uh, to what Brian Harson's trying to do with them this season. So I like Missouri to make a bowl game next year. I think they're going in the right direction. I like what Drinkwitz is doing, especially on the recruiting trail, uh, being able to keep kids, keep some of the top kids in the Midwest coming to Missouri, coming to the sole SEC team. Uh, in that kind of region right there, Illinois, St. Louis kind of region as well. So, like Missouri, I still think this is going to be a team that barely gets to a bowl game this year for another year in a row. All right, let's go over to 76 Stanford. Following a 3-2 and start that included wins over USC and Oregon, Stanford lost its final seven games and scored 14-plus points only once to slide to 3-9, and nine, and the Cardinal were outscored 173-46. to 46. In November, just patheticsville. Uh, DK's got their win total at four and a half. We have them at five and seven. So over the four and a half total, Nick for Stanford, they rank to, uh, in the top ten in overall production, returning production, and top twenty-five. Uh, they had a top twenty-five recruiting class. But can David Shaw's squad turn things around twenty twenty-two, or will an outdated offense and a tough schedule? be too much to overcome and is david shaw ever going to be on the hot seat i asked this question last year i and you you told me that he was one of the had one of the safest jobs in the country i don't think especially after that november that that cannot be the case it, you know he may maybe doesn't get fired but i don't think he, he say that that's that seat's got to be at least warming up a little bit right are we at least on low or do you think that he's just uh, bulletproof here, Nick? <laughs> I don't. I don't think the hot seat exists at Stanford. I, just, I was gonna say the same thing. Yeah, I don't. Come it, on, it doesn't. You did outscored one hundred seventy-three to forty-six, and you're you're not you're not he, at least side on. They don't. He's he's, he's built up so much. And he's yeah. built up so much <laughs> equity at this point. Like you know, they 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 were ranked for so they they won a Rose Bowl in the last five years. Like I mean, what is what is there more to do for him? I there? think the most surprising thing about David Shaw was they still had him during the draft on NFL network. I was like, this guy's got nothing uh, like maybe Tanner McKee next year, but, but we haven't had anything since Andrew Luck out of Stanford. Right. I mean, I mean uh, yeah, but okay. So he's gone four and eight, four and two in a COVID shortened year and then three and nine. So he's had three four, and nine. Okay. Hold on, hold on. So he's had two really, really crappy seasons. 
after going 11, 12 and, 11 and 2, 12 and 2, 11 and 3, 8 and 5, 12 and 2, 10 and 3, 9 and 5, 9 and 4. You just, it's just, it's, it's not possible. He's going I mean, to I, 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 I would argue the other way. I, I know you guys talk about, and, and you, you guys are obviously right because David Shaw hasn't been fired and there's been no hint of being replaced uh, from him at all. I understand that it's hard with the, uh, you know, restrictions you have to get into Stanford. You have a certain amount of players that you can recruit and all that, and they still end up with these great recruiting classes. David Shaw is an excellent recruiter, uh, but in terms of coaching, I just don't know if he doesn't. Have, if he doesn't have the players, they don't even hint. They're not even whiffing 500 here. That's I can't true. believe they beat USC and Oregon. This is the most bipolar team, yeah. I think, in the Pac-12. But anyway, uh, I'll shut up and let Nick talk about Stanford. <laughs> well, no, I just. I'm not sure unless he somehow somehow ran afoul of the administration for non-football reasons. I don't think he'd get fired. Uh, and I just don't necessarily see that happening either. Would David Shaw maybe leave? I mean, possibly. I mean, he seems like one of the best guys. Like, I, sure. I, yeah. I, you know, I got to say that, but he seems like an amazing human being. Yeah. So, yeah, I think so. Know. And, and, you know, uh, has earned a lot of respect from coaches, from his peers. Uh, obviously don't you know, know him personally or, or any of that, but uh, seems like a stand-up guy for sure. But yeah, I just, I think it's more Stanford is just very unique in it seems as is my understanding, the administration just doesn't care all that much if, whether or not they win football games and so you know as long as he's uh graduating players and and um willing to be there then i you know i, I feel like uh he's going to be there as long as he wants to be will he leave maybe you know maybe maybe an nfl opportunity comes along because the nfl still does kind of uh like that old school thing that he does um, so that's possible, but I, I don't know that he's going to be in any danger of losing his job. I could be wrong. I just don't necessarily see it happening. My biggest question though is, or, or, you know, my biggest thought is I have a history and our projections have a history. I just, just can't figure Stanford out. They are one of those teams that for whatever reason, we just always seem to be on the wrong side of some years, we're too low and they end up overachieving. I believe 2020 was one of those years. Uh, some years were too high last year, 2019, and they fall flat. Um, they're just, they're uh, difficult for us to project because there are a lot of talented, highly rated guys on this roster. Tanner McKee at quarterback. I mean, I'm hearing all sorts of NFL buzz, first round buzz. Um, you know, EJ Smith at running back. Emmett Smith's son, uh, super, you know, highly talented, even though they're losing Nathaniel Pete, they lost, um, uh, Jones. What's his, uh, his first name, Austin Jones transferred to USC. Seems like they're going to be in, you know, good hands with EJ Smith. Shaw has been out. I believe he was on a, uh, PFF podcast and, and, you know, maybe did some other appearances where he really talked up EJ Smith, really talked up, uh, guys in his receiving core, which to be fair, that receiving core, was hit really hard by injuries last year. Elijah Huggins, Bryson Tremaine, John Humphreys, all those guys missed time uh, because of injury last year. But, you know, Benjamin Urasek 
is a maybe top five tight end nationally, like a, an actual All-American candidate tight end. Uh, and the offensive line has, I mean, I saw, uh, who's it, Phil Savage is the the guy in charge of the Senior Bowl, was tweeting about Walter Roos the other day. Uh, all five starters return on the offensive line. All of them, you know, rank pretty highly if they were not, you know, four-star guys coming in like Miles Hinton or Branson Bragg. They're guys who've played, you know, dozens of games at this point uh, and have built their way into being highly rated in our uh, calculations. But performance on the field, much like the one-loss record, much like um, just the team as a whole, was not great. That offensive line ranked 125th in our O-line performance ratings last year. Not a big surprise because the offense ranked 110th. Uh, overall, they ranked 115th. Defensively, they ranked 117th. They were one of the worst teams in the country running the football offensively. They were ranked 120th in rushing offensive team performance. And then stopping the run, they ranked 126th in defensive rushing team performance. So, you know, when we think of Stanford and, and when they were good and when, you know, the teams that Xavier was mentioning, when they when David Shaw built up a lot of that goodwill and, and uh, a lot of that respect for his coaching abilities, it, they were able to run the football. They were, you know, that intellectual brutality, right? It's what they call it. The, the, you know, it looked like, uh, what are they, the memes where there are like 12 tight ends on the field. And, and they just... Right now, it seems like either they completely go away from that sometimes and just throw up jump balls, uh, or they aren't able to win at the line of scrimmage when they do try to go big and uh, you know try to try to run with two tight ends and a fullback and, and all that stuff. It just hasn't worked out well for them. So, I offensively, you know. I'm, I'm hearing some uh, really high praise for the talent level of individual players. I'm also seeing some signs like consistency on the offensive line, uh, improving health in the receiving core that made me think, okay, there's reason that this offense is going to get better. Uh, defensively, you know, personnel-wise, the front seven is a, is a major issue. You know, the linebacker core, they bring back Levani Damuni, who's the leading tackler, uh, had a good season. Ricky Meitzen also uh, experienced, had a good season. That that group as a whole uh, ranks out, you know, rates out pretty well. Um, but up front, the defensive line, they've been thin for years, and they are now, you know, really inexperienced as well. There's a couple guys like Stephen Heron, a true freshman, David Bailey's, you know, could start. Uh, those two guys on the edge, really talented players, but there's just not the size there used to be. There's not the depth there there used to be up front. That's a major area of concern. And, you know, in the secondary, it was a much, much better performing unit. They ranked 69th against the pass defensively. Uh, Kyle Blue Kelly looks like an NFL player, uh, all Pac-12 player. Um, they brought in Pat Fields, an experienced transfer from Oklahoma, uh, pair him up with Kendall Williamson at, at safety. They've got Jimmy Wyrick coming back, who uh, played nickel, uh, excuse me, nickel most of last year. They've got some depth back there as well. Uh, but even that unit, you know, isn't what it used to be. There's, there's not necessarily 
you know, maybe Kelly can be that shutdown corner type guy, but um, otherwise it's, it's not the deepest unit. It's not as a whole uh, the most talented unit, especially that we've seen at Stanford in a while. So there's just a lot of questions uh, personnel wise. There's, there's depth issues on both sides of the football um, and there's concerns on the offensive and defensive line, which we never really used to have. Plus I'm finally getting around to your question schedule is incredibly tough there's one guaranteed win on the schedule and that's the opener against colgate uh everybody else i mean yeah they might beat usc and oregon again who knows they might beat notre dame but they also might lose to you know seven or eight teams that that you would think uh they have an equal or better uh level of talent you know, I, we, we have them as an underdog, for example, at home against Oregon State. You know, that's a team that you would think Stanford, Oregon State, who's going to have the more talented team? You know, I, I probably naturally uh, would react Stanford, but our numbers don't necessarily show that that's the case. Arizona State has so many off the field issues, uh, but right now we've got Arizona State as a slight favorite on the road uh, against Stanford. So, you know, there, there are winnable games and Stanford has a history of knocking off teams that you would think it shouldn't in some of these down years, like they did last year with UNC and, and Oregon, but it's also gotten to the point where it's really, really difficult to, you know, trust them to take care of business in games where they do have a talent edge. Uh, and then just, you know, the, the non-conference, opponents Notre Dame BYU I mean that's that's just really really difficult scheduling in addition to uh playing a better USC team uh Pac-12 doesn't have divisions anymore so it's it's not necessarily north and south anymore but you know what would have been a cross division uh opponent in USC that's a tough draw to get um Arizona State you know not the not the worst draw but at Utah that that's uh, pretty brutal. That's a game where they're going to be a pretty hefty underdog, most likely. So it's the schedule's tough, and and the personnel questions, and just the ability or, or inability for me to at this point trust Stanford to be innovative or, or you know uh, do something offensively or even in some cases defensively to give other teams trouble uh, consistently. You know, I'm I'm relatively pessimistic. It would not shock me if this team wins nine games just because every once in a while they put it together and they do that. Um, but also, I, I just personally and, and our projections uh, specifically as well just struggle with Stanford a little bit. So there's a wide range of possible outcomes, and, and quite honestly, I'm not sure exactly uh, which one to expect. Xavier, your thoughts on uh, Stanford? I mean – one of the most difficult teams to pick out from a year in year out basis. I mean, even last year, you know, getting outscored by that much in November over a hundred points. And, but you beat, you had wins of over USC and Oregon on the schedule. Uh, they, they're just a little bit bipolar. So what do you think of Stanford for this year? Uh, I don't think, yeah, last year's team being a little bit bipolar, I think was an understatement, uh, especially in the ways that they both beat oregon and usc i mean they pretty much dominate the oregon game until like the last like six minutes where they try to throw it away and then they kind of you know hit usc over the head and that was only the second game of the season so people really hadn't realized that usc maybe wasn't all that good yet 
Uh, this year, my, my real concern with the schedule of, you know, just looking at it, uh, is the fact that they have to win or play 10 straight games. They're another one of these teams with an early bye week. They play Colgate, USC, and then they've got a bye week. And then it's 10 straight Pac-12 matchups, um, or excuse me, eight straight Pac-12 matchups, uh, Notre Dame and BYU. So I just feel like they're going to be playing a tough schedule. Once again, it's one of those situations where if you don't have it figured out, it's going to be pretty tough for you to have a chance to do so, uh, like we had talked about in previous podcasts. Um, I do think that I'm, I'm maybe I want to say I'm a little bit higher than Nick on Stanford. Um, I'm not saying I'm going with the over. I don't know if this is going to be a team that wins, you know, six or seven games. I just feel like if they're able to get past the first three, the first four games of their season without completely losing, you know, their way, they'll be fine. They play USC, Washington, and Oregon in the first three. I think if they're able to to mitigate that, you know, maybe they come out of it two and two. Obviously, one and three is what people probably expect. Uh, then the rest of the games, I don't see them not being able to compete at the very least. They should be able to compete against Oregon State at home. They should be able to compete against Arizona State at home. Uh, I feel like they should be able to compete with Washington State, UCLA, California, and BYU. Now, obviously, I didn't say Notre Dame and Utah. Those might be the only two other losses that I, I'm guaranteeing. But every other team I said, I think they should be able to uh, – I think you should be able to to compete against those teams. Um, so I, I think when I look at Stanford, yes, they're a weird team because of their style in the Pac-12. is completely different than pretty much everybody else outside of Utah. But when they get it – when they've got it going, it goes really, really well. Um I just don't know if, I, if I'm ready to, to go ahead and say Stanford's going to have that quote-unquote bounce back here after three pretty, you know, pretty middling seasons uh, and last year being very, very bad. So I'm going to say that Stanford gets the over. I think they'll get over their five-and-a-half win total – or, excuse me, their four-and-a-half win total, um, which I believe I, doesn't necessarily mean they're going to win a bowl game or get to a bowl game, but I think that they show a little, some improvement under David Shaw – uh, who probably has the, the the hottest, coldest seat in America uh, at the, at this current moment? Um, it, you know, it's icy hot. That, yeah, that, pretty that's, much. They, they, that's who needs to sponsor them. Icy hot for for him. Uh, all right, let's go over to seventy five Western Michigan. WMU opened four and one last year, including a win over eventual ACC champ Pitt, but lost four MAC games in which they were all favorites to finish seven and five, four and four in the MAC. Uh, before a 52-24 win over a shorthanded Nevada team in the Quick Lane Bowl, DK's got them at six and a half. We have them at seven and five, so over the six and a half. But the question for uh, WMU here, Nick, is that you know our projection season is one of the favorites in, uh, to win the MAC, but they're going to be without Sky Moore, who's on the Chiefs now. Caleb Ellaby, the starting QB, is now in camp with the the uh, Seahawks and four other starters are in NFL camps uh, around the league. So are the Broncos actually a legitimate contender uh, to win another conference title here? I, I, you know, our numbers think so. And it's kind of similar to Missouri in some ways. If they can figure out the quarterback position, then, then yes. I know that, you know, regardless of whether it's Jake, uh, Salopec, who it seems like after spring practice had the, um, you know, the inside track to start, either uh, uh, Mayorn Horowski, uh did actually get a, a good bit of playing time in more of a short yardage, you know, QB run uh, situation last year, played in four games, 36 snaps. You know, 
the the two of those might the the two of those guys might play. Uh, they also brought in a uh, transfer from Alabama quarterback walk on, but you know that's worked out well for some G five teams in the past. Lane Hatcher is an example, uh, guy who walked on to Alabama and then blossomed as a starter elsewhere. Uh, if they can figure out that quarterback position, I think they're going to be just fine. Uh, they do have maybe the best one-two running back duo in the MAC, Sean Tyler and Ladarius Jefferson, both of whom have, have been uh, all-conference performers in the past. Uh, Corey Crooms is uh, kind of the heir apparent as the wide receiver one. Uh, had a you know pretty big impact even uh, with Sky Moore. Uh, on the field and, and so you would expect that he'll be able to you know take over be that go-to guy um they brought in kind of an intriguing option uh, a transfer from boston college jelani galloway uh we don't have him projected as a starter right now he, he probably should be uh however should probably make that switch but uh a little bit more in the you know sky more skill set perhaps um, not saying he is Sky Moore, but might be able to fill that role and, and allow Kroom still some some room to work. So, you know, I, I think that they do have playmakers. They're not going to be one-dimensional, um, just trying to pound the football uh, with Tyler and Jefferson. I, I do think that they're going to be able to have a fairly diverse offense. Uh, and, and part of the reason for that, part of the reason I'm as optimistic as I am, is they brought in – really an, an outside of the uh, box uh, play caller when uh, needed a, a change at offensive coordinator. They went to Jeff Thorne, who has a long-term uh, history with head coach, Tim Lester, uh, Tim Lester, I believe actually um, maybe worked for Thorne. I don't know. There's, there's some connection in the back. I was, I was uh, doing some research on uh, both coaches' histories a, a while ago, but uh, Thorne has been the head coach at North Central, Division II North Central in Illinois since uh, 2015, and before that was the offensive play caller. But the offensive numbers that North Central has put up in the last few years are just, I mean, eye-popping. Um, they didn't play in 2020, but... Their starting quarterback in uh, 2021, Luke Lanen, threw for 3,200 yards, 33 touchdowns, 10 interceptions, averaged 11 yards per attempt. In 2019, the uh, starting quarterback, Brock Rutter, uh, threw for 4,500, excuse me, uh, 4,591 yards, 56 touchdowns, and five interceptions. Averaged over 10 yards per attempt. And during those two seasons, their leading rusher, Ethan Greenfield, last year had nearly 1,800 rushing yards and 24 touchdowns. And the year, uh, the season prior to that, 2019, had 2,169 rushing yards and 29 touchdowns. So I know it's not a one-to-one -one comparison, but, I mean, those are beyond video game numbers. So I, I'm really kind of excited to see what that offense looks like at Western Michigan. Sure, I would have loved to have seen, you know, Caleb Ellaby running that offense. He actually left school early to, you know, go and not be drafted. Um, but I still think there's enough, you know, left behind that this is going to be a pretty fun offense 
and, and guys like Sean Tyler and, and Corey Crooms are in line to have pretty big statistical seasons. I'm a little bit more concerned defensively. Uh, they do return, you know, a, a decent uh, core at each level. Uh, Andre Carter and Brandon Fiske are returning starters up front. Corvin Moment, Zaire Barnes, Ryan Seelig were all starters in the linebacker core. Barnes was an all-conference uh, performer. Moment was actually the most productive uh, of the unit last year. And then Dorius Jackson had a really, really solid uh, all-max season at corner. So the uh, the depth certainly took a hit, and, and their high-end guys, really, really productive guys like Ali Fayad, Ralph Hawley, uh, even A.J. Thomas uh, ran out of the eligibility, are no longer on the roster. But, you know, the talent at Western Michigan is consistently, uh, you know, top half, if not toward the very top of the MAC. A little bit concerned about depth, but nobody in the MAC really has that much depth. Um, I, I feel like, you know, expectations are certainly going to be lower. And this is a team that didn't meet those expectations. You mentioned losing four conference games all as a favorite last year. But I'm I'm really kind of intrigued as to what this offense is going to look like. Um, and similar, like I said, to Missouri, if they figure it out at the quarterback position and it seems like they've got some options to do so. Yeah, I, I think this could be a fun team and a team that is going to definitely be in the mix. You know, give Toledo kind of a run for its money uh, in the Western Division in the MAC. You know, they're probably not going to upset Pitt again. Probably not going to beat Michigan State. Um, but every MAC game, as I've said forever, is winnable. And you know, they will have an opportunity to host Toledo at the in the regular season finale, maybe with a shot to win their way uh, into the conference title game. That that would not shock me at all. Xavier, your thoughts on WMU? I mean, missing a lot, but the you know the the core is still there, the foundation is still there. exactly, and that's what I was going to allude to. And Nick kind of hit on the head as well. Is even though you lose so much talent around, you know, with Caleb Ellaby leaving and things like that, this isn't a Louisiana situation where they've lost pretty much their entire nucleus in the last season or two. You know, you, you feel like with WMU, you still have the crux of what's going to make them a good team still there. Now, obviously, if their quarterback situation just really goes bottom up, you know, there's really nothing you can do, right? At that point, you've tried everything you could. Just a tough situation to be in. You know, Caleb Ellaby being who he is, which was just necessary for you guys to win ball games, right? That, that dynamic of a player, you're still going to miss out on some of that dynamicism, but it doesn't maybe over, uh, change overall what your record will be next year. I don't see why this team couldn't go ahead and go eight and four again, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, I have no reason to, to suggest that this team's going to take a tremendous drop off uh, for a team that was eight and four, but like Nick talked about, probably should have been somewhere in the range of 10 and two, if not 11 and one last season, uh, losing four games that they were favored in. So their record, I think, you know, maybe precedes them a little bit too much from last season. And so I think this year, this is a team that might actually have going eight and four this year will be more impressive than it was last season. Uh, so I'm going to go with the over with them. Uh, this is a team that I think consistently is also doing pretty well for themselves. Uh, it, it has done pretty well for themselves in previous years in the uh, on the recruiting trail. And I think this year actually showed that sometimes, you know, I've talked about in this podcast before you, you, you look for teams to really try to replace, you know, the talent that they left, that they lost by like, you know, rushing to the transfer portal. 
And, and, and Scott, you alluded to this with them not losing so much talent in, you know, in the crux of what they are and their nucleus. They didn't really hit the, tra- the, the transfer portal all that hard, you know, finished with a 213th rating. Right. This is a team that finished 124th nationally uh, when it came to recruiting as a whole. I just feel like this was one of those teams that understood that they still have a ton of talent there. They just are having to figure out some very important positions, but the talent is still on display because this is a team in the prior two years finished 90 and 90 respectively. uh, And for a team like Western Michigan, that's pretty good, you know, and finishing almost 40 spots lower in 2022, I don't think is any indicative of any, you know, swing that they're all all of a sudden going to take into this lower aspect of the, uh, into this lower ranking of the Mac, if that makes sense. So yeah, I, I think give me Western Michigan's over. I think this is a team that will finish with seven to eight wins and could very well possibly be a a Mac champion slash Mac contender going into this year. I agree with Nick. They're going, they're not going to be anybody's sleeper to go into into East Lansing and knock off Michigan state um, and Pitt going to Kalamazoo will be just a fun situation. You know, that's not oftentimes that P five teams go travel to some of these smaller cities. So it'll just be a fun game for that, uh, for that reason alone. Uh, but they should be able to handle the non-conference schedule pretty well with San Jose State and New Hampshire both being on it as well. And, and then once it gets to the MAC, you know, I won't, I won't say all bets are off with this team because I do believe they're one of the better teams in the MAC, if not the best team. Uh, but this is a team that absolutely should be seven and five at the very least coming into the year. All right, let's go over to the next squad up. Illinois at seventy-four. Brett Bielema led Illinois to an upset over Nebraska in Week Zero, but lost four in a row after that three by one possession. And despite wins over Penn state and Minnesota, Illinois still finished five and seven, four and five in conference and missed a bowl. DK's got their win total at four and five. We got them at six and six. So well over that four and a half. Uh, Nick for Illinois, they fell short of a bowl eligibility last year. There seems to be some momentum for the Illini heading into 2022. However, there's a lot of toss-up games on this schedule. What's the floor for this team? What's the ceiling? And how do you see it panning out? Uh, you know, I tweeted something the other day where I said, you know, maybe it's just that time of year. And, and you start to basically talk you in, talk yourself into anybody. I'm, I'm really starting to warm up to Illinois. I, I do think that um, you know, that loss to UTSA right after uh, beating Nebraska, they were a favorite in that game, but that loss, you know, doesn't look as bad as it did uh, at the time. Certainly after UTSA had the run that they did, uh, Virginia was a much better team than a lot of people maybe expected uh, when Illinois lost that game early last year, got blown out. And then they lost some toss-ups. You know, they won one that that you could argue uh, was a little bit fluky, the nine-overtime win over Penn State. But they were pretty competitive. And then by the end of the year, uh, knocked off Minnesota uh, and just completely dominated Northwestern. It seemed like they built some momentum. I feel like, you know, things are moving in the right direction. There are some quite talented uh, players, Chase Brown, one of the better running backs in the Big Ten. Somebody can definitely build an offense around, especially, you know, the type of offenses that we're used to. Brett Bielema coach teams uh, putting on the field. They added Barry Lonnie Jr., who was uh, not only the offensive coordinator at UTSA the last couple of years, so uh, an offense that did a really, really good job of utilizing Sincere McCormack, but also pretty balanced with guys like 
you know, Frank Harris at quarterback and, and some playmakers at receiver, uh, Zachary Franklin, Joshua Cephas, those type guys, you know, they have a history. Uh, Lenny worked at Arkansas under Bielema, so they know each other really well. It's, it's uh, a level of consistency that, you know, a little bit rare after you make a, a coordinator change uh, following your first season as a head coach. The offensive line uh, took a little bit of a hit experience-wise. A couple guys got drafted, only two starters return, but that's a unit that, you know, I kind of trust Bielema and his coaching staff to uh, coach up and develop and, and that it won't be a weakness. You know, it was a strength last year. They ranked 43rd in offensive line performance. Um, and I think there's reasonable expectation that, that you know, a top 50 offensive line is achievable, even if you're going to insert, you know, a, a Juco starter or two guys who uh, are new to the program, don't have a whole lot of experience. I feel like they're going to be able to get that unit up to speed relatively quickly. And that's going to put uh, Brown in a good uh, situation. I also really liked what I saw out of Josh McRae as a true freshman last year, 240 pound. I mean, big running back, 6'1, 240. Uh, he had an opportunity, uh, to, to perform at times when Brown missed, uh, due to injury. I think that's going to be a solid one, two punch. I really like Isaiah Williams. He's raw as a wide receiver. He's small. Um, but you know, moved from quarterback early last year, uh, basically in fall camp last year, I believe, and became, you know, the, the leading receiver. Luke Ford has a ton of raw talent, was a five-star or borderline five-star tight end, uh, hasn't really developed into a go-to receiver yet, but got a decent grade uh, from the NFL draft evaluation you know, uh, group, but still decided to come back. Be interesting to see if he can finally uh, develop into the type of tight end that's going to make a big impact in the passing game. Arthur Sikowski uh, suffered a... a you know, pretty devastating injury uh, late in the year, but had started to, you know, play pretty well uh, towards the end of the season. Then they also brought in Tommy DeVito, another guy who's been wildly inconsistent, but, um, you know, has had some moments that make you think maybe they'll be able to, you know, develop as seniors, one of those two guys, uh, to give this team some consistency of the quarterback position. We'll see. Defensively, you know, it, it wasn't a... Uh, the defensive line, I should say, didn't grade all that well, particularly right 92nd in defensive line team performance. But on paper, guys like uh, Zerdan, excuse me, Zer, Jerzon, Newton, and Keith Randolph are you know solid defensive ends. Uh, they beefed up the interior uh, through the transfer portal, bringing in Rashawn Wilkins, who started you know, 19 games at Vanderbilt. They've got guys like Jamal Woods who've played a lot. Um, I think they're going to be maybe slightly improved there. And then the rest of the unit was was pretty solid. It was a top 50 group in defensive team performance overall, top 30 pass uh, defense, and, you know, brings back a, a pretty solid group in the back seven, um, including – Calvin Hart Jr., who was, I believe, National Player of the Year, or excuse me, of the week in that win over Nebraska, but suffered a season-ending injury. So if he's back fully healthy, 
know, he and Tariq Barnes, pretty solid duo at linebacker. I think they've got some depth there. Guys like Devin Witherspoon, Sidney Brown, Jatavius Martin in the secondary all coming back. Um, I, I, I think this is a team that is going to be highly competitive. You mentioned we project a lot of toss-up games. I mean, uh, the game against uh, Indiana, less than a point difference, projected point spread. Uh, against Virginia, less than a point. Iowa, less I mean, point zero five. Against Purdue, less than a point. Against Northwestern and Michigan State, a field goal. Minnesota, a field goal. I mean, so everything is just uh, on the slimmest of margins. There, Illinois is not going to be a big favorite against anybody other than uh, FCS Chattanooga. You know, they're even a single-digit favorite against Wyoming in the opener. We talked last week how they have to go to Indiana the following week. Indiana will have been prepping for Illinois for months. Illinois has been prepping for Wyoming, and then will have you know six days to get ready for Indiana. That's kind of a tough thing. Uh, but two bye weeks, and they do miss Ohio State. They do miss uh, – no, excuse me. They do play Michigan. They play Michigan State. But they miss Penn State. So that's a pretty decent draw when you're looking at the crossover opponents. It's difficult to say that coin flips are going to go a certain way, but if you kind of you know split your coin flips, uh, which is probably the most reasonable expectation, take care of business against Wyoming, and then you know maybe pull up pull an upset because you have an extra bye week before that trip. Uh, excuse me, trip to Nebraska, team that you beat last year. You know, win a game like that where you're probably going to be a seven or eight point underdog. And this Illinois team, I think, will be in the mix to make it back to a bowl game. And, and uh, you know, didn't get it there last year, didn't dig out of that hole that they had built with that losing streak uh, quickly enough. But I feel like this team, especially if that offensive line gels and there's a little consistency at the quarterback position, I, I think that this is a team that that can really make a run at bowl eligibility. Probably not much more than that, but I do think that going over the four and a half you know, I feel pretty good about that. That's one of our biggest edges uh, that we've seen so far, you know, nearly one and a half wins difference. But I think even, yeah, getting getting over the four and a half is, is a really good shot. Getting to six is definitely a possibility and a, and a worthy goal. Uh, Xavier, what do you think about Illinois? Do you think they can get to the six win total? It's the Bielema effect. Yeah, <laughs> I don't see why not. Uh, this, this is what Brett does. He, he comes in and he changes the culture of a team. And he may not ever win you the big, big game. That's what we learned from Brett Bielema at his time at former universities. But he will make you a consistent competitor at every single step of the way. It just might not end up turning into a conference champion. But it's Illinois. Like, this is something that he is more than feasible here. And if he's able to, you know, give them a couple of seven and five, eight and four seasons in the future, not saying that's going to be this year, then he's, he's, then he's going to be a part of Illinois football lore, uh, you know, to make them a relevant ball club, right? Uh, I think there's a team that absolutely can get to six games. When, when you look at their schedule, I do believe, you know, they might be able to win two of their first three, maybe all three of their first three. Um, then after that, bets are off. You know, I, I, at that point, you've got to beat Chattanooga, uh, you know, uh, Northwestern and Purdue. That's six games, right? Like that, like it's not rocket science to see how Illinois can, fi- can somehow get to six wins. Uh, they do avoid Ohio State. 
Uh, they do avoid Penn State, uh, you know, and you get Michigan State at home, which is huge because uh, Michigan State will give you a game. They they tend to give someone a game every year that they're not supposed to lose. Typically late in the year, they give it away. Uh, you you just you know you get Nebraska off of a bye week. Yeah, yes, you have to go to Lincoln, but also if you, if you're rolling at that point, you might also have your, uh, yourself a chance. And depending on what Iowa looks like, you get them at home as well. You have a chance to at least compete at that level. You know, this Illinois team this year, I'm not expecting them to, you know, pull what Iowa did last year where they're somehow a top five team in the country, you know, seven or eight games in. But this is going to be a competitive outfit. They showed it last year at times that if you let them hang around, they'll beat you. Shout out to Penn State. This is a team that has, that will show you that if you, if you allow them to kind of hang around in ball games, you know, Maryland – got scraped away with one last year. Uh, Purdue beat them 13 to nine. Maryland beat them 20 to 17. Uh, UTSA beat them 37 to 30. Rutgers beat them 20 to 14. So very, so some competitive outfits, even the game that they lost at Iowa last year, they lost 33, 23. So, you know, they weren't just getting, you know, smacked around uh, by, by the rest of the big 10. And I feel like that's very indicative of a team that's ready to take that next step, ready to get into a bowl game this year. So I'm gonna take the over um, on their four and a half, uh, which, you know, obviously could just mean five wins, but I think it'll turn into a bowl game for them this year, which if anybody can tell me, Nick, maybe you have it on hand. When's the last time Illinois made a bowl game? Uh, it's only been a couple of years. It's only been a couple of years. Yeah, they they went to one, what was that, 2019? They lost to Cal, yeah, at, yeah, in 2019. Mm-hmm. But, it's, I mean, that's the only one in a while, so uh, I can <laughs> dig into it a little bit more. But, but yeah, certainly haven't haven't done it often. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, Illinois. It would be it would be awesome to see them back in a bowl game. I know they. So be they've been happy. to three. They were they went to three in the 2010 decade total. They've been to six since two since 2000. Six bowl games since 2000. Yikes. That is, uh, it's a rough stretch, but Bielema <laughs> yeah. is turning them around. Let's go to number 73, Washington State. Uh, Jake Dicker took over as interim head coach midway through the season and led the Cougs to a 3-3 three and three record, which included a 24-21 loss to Central Michigan in the Sun Bowl. They finished 7-6 and six last year. DK's got their win total at 5.5. We have them at 6-6, six and six, so just slightly over that 5.5. Similar to Illinois, Nick. Uh, it seems like Washington State is destined for a lot of these games to be close in 2022. There's some buzz around their new quarterback, Cam Ward. Will he keep them on the right side of bowl eligibility this season? It's it's going to be really tight. Our projections, you know, as you mentioned, are for them to get to six and six. That's because we rounded up that 5.58 uh, projected win total. You know, they, similar to, to talking about Illinois, have to win most, uh, more coin flips than they lose, certainly. Might have to, you know, get an upset or two and can't afford uh, to, to be upset. Just have to take care of business against Idaho, of course, Colorado State, Cal, and Arizona right now are the four teams that we have Washington State favored. And then, you know, they're less than a field goal underdog against Stanford, Arizona State, right around a field goal against Washington, less than a touchdown against Oregon State, and then actually getting Oregon at home with a first-time head coach to open Pac-12 play is, you know, maybe a a game where you can really uh, make a splash. They're less than an eight-point underdog. So there, there are winnable games. The schedule sets up decently well. Uh, where maybe they could knock off, you know, one of those higher rated teams 
in the conference because they get Oregon at home, they get Utah at home, they get Oregon and USC early in Pac-12 play with new head coaches. Um, so, you know, some timing, some some venues, things like that are, are actually, uh, I think, working in Washington State's favor. And then we've said it a few times the show already, if they hit on the quarterback and there is reason to believe that Cam Ward, you know, could be a really, really uh, great quarterback, put up just huge numbers as an FCS uh, starter last year. His head coach at Incarnate Word, where they went to the playoffs, um, is now the offensive coordinator at Washington State, Eric Morris. So there's familiarity there. It's kind of, you know somewhat similar to the situation we saw at Western Kentucky. It's just you know up a, a, a little bit of a notch because they're playing a Power Five schedule. Uh, there is not the complete uh, you know. They didn't bring the whole receiving core from the FCS level like Western Kentucky did last year, but you know, brought Rob Farrell as a, a wide receiver who um, was one of Cam Ward's favorites, uh, but then also inherits a, a pretty good group of receivers. Dijon Stribling's the leading returning receiver. Uh, Donovan Ollie was a starter last year. Renard Bell was a starter, has started 30 games in his career, missed all of last season due to injury, but you know, he should be back. Zariah Beeson is a transfer coming in from Oregon State. Lincoln Victor transfer last season from Hawaii, who I've just, you know, heard had a, a huge, huge spring. So there's there is plenty to work with, I think, offensively. I think the offense is potentially going to be a, a really, really good uh unit, a top half, if not, you know, toward the top of the Pac-12, um, you know, passing offense for sure. But then they've got a little talent in the backfield as well. Nakia Watson uh, was a really, really, you know, well-regarded player when he uh, looked like he was going to be the starter at Wisconsin, was set up for for big things, then entered the transfer portal, found his way to Washington State. And we'll see. You know, they brought in a couple of freshmen that they seem to really like. The, the biggest question offensively is the offensive line because they did lose a third round draft pick in Abraham Lucas. They also lost a you know fellow 42 game starter uh, who's in camp with the Seahawks, Liam Ryan. And that unit just wasn't great last year, even with those two guys ranked 101st in our O-line performance rating. So that's going to be a little bit of, of an issue. Uh, depth there certainly, but even you know finding that starting five uh, is going to be a, a major question. They did bring in a starter from the FCS level, Grant Stevens from uh, I believe it was Northern Colorado, um, and, and he might pencil you know he might be able to to take uh, one of those tackle spots. Um, but it, it's going to be a little bit of a question as to whether or not you know Cam Ward's going to have time to uh, find those those open receivers. It's a pretty you know, quick offense as far as uh, get the ball out of his hand quickly, but, but still a little bit of an area of concern. And then defensively, they've got some speed. They've got some playmakers. Um, they did make a change at uh, defensive coordinator as well, brought in uh, Nevada's former DC, Brian Ward. Uh, they were able to, partly because of that connection to bring in Diane Henley, who had one of the most productive seasons of any linebacker in college football last year, but was just everywhere on the field for Nevada. Pencil him in as a starter. 
Uh, also brought in you know Jordan Lee from Nevada, Cam Lampkin from Utah State, which has a uh, position coach tie. They brought in Utah State's um, secondary coach. And up front, a lot of experience, guys like Ron Stone Jr., who is one of the better pass rushers in the uh, Pac-12. Brennan Jackson certainly you know, showed some promise as a pass rusher, as did Andrew Edson. My, my biggest concern is they are light. They are light up front. I count one 300-pounder, uh, and that's Christian Mejia, who uh, right now we don't have projected as a starter. Looks like Antonio Tavapole. Uh, who's 285 pounds, and Amir uh, Majuhad, who is uh, 270 pounds. And my apologies to to both of those players if I uh, mispronounce your names, but uh, just lighter than you would hope for uh, for a team that you know is going to have to to keep some pretty decent opposing offenses in check. I mean, are they going to get just beat up in week two going on the road against Wisconsin? Are they going to be able to keep up with uh, that new look Colorado State team. Oregon brings back a lot on the offensive line, even though I kind of like how that matchup, you know, sits on the on the calendar. It's it's not a great matchup when you're looking at the line of scrimmage on, on either side. So, you know, Cal is tough to beat uh on the on the line of scrimmage. So it's it's uh personnel wise, uh, there there certainly are some questions and Washington State is a team that never is going to rank really high in roster strength or, or things like that. Pretty low down in, in the power five ranking, 72nd overall, 65th on offense, 81st on defense. But it's a team that, you know, pretty consistently over the last few head coaches, including Jake Dickert in his interim stint last year, you know, has, has overperformed those roster strength numbers. So I think they'll be competitive. I think getting back to a bowl game is a, a again, a worthy goal and, and something that is certainly uh, possible, but it, it's going to be by the you know slimmest of margins um, if they're able to do it, if they're able to get over that win total, uh, because we basically have them projected right at that five and a half. Xavier, uh, your thoughts here. Do you think that Washington State is uh, going to be bowl eligible, or would you? Uh, do you think they're going to be on the outside looking in here? It's going to be tough. And then the reason why I say it's going to be so tough is not only because I do think that they're going to have to win a ton of their toss-ups. I just don't think like we, we talked about the other day with Cal I, that we I think I was a little bit higher on Cal than I am than Washington State to be perfectly honest with you. And if Cal is some team that you know takes that next step, then they, somebody's going to have to be the odd guy out. Like not every team in the, in the conference can make a bowl game, uh, you know. But this team's going to go as far as you know uh, Cameron Ward takes them if he is that dynamic of a player. You know, we've seen it happen before. Dynamic players can come in and that be all she wrote, right? He he come in, hit the ground running, and turn that Washington State offense into as explosive as it was during some of the peak Mike Leach uh, years, right? Um, if he's able to do that, then all, all bets are off at that point. This is a team that could very well see itself, you know, winning seven to eight games and, you know, possibly, you know, in, in, a, in a pretty decent bowl in comparison, you know, to what they were last year, or, you know, even I want to say cracking nine wins. Cause I just think that their schedule was a little bit too difficult for that to happen. But also, you know, if, if a player of Cameron Ward's ability hits the ground running, we've seen crazier things happen. Uh, I will say the positives for them is they get both or they get Oregon at home. They get Washington at home this year. They get Utah at home. They get Arizona state at home uh, this year as well. So they really have only one outside of Wisconsin. They only have one 
tough on the road Pac-12 game. Uh, no offense to Oregon State, uh, but I think that that would be a little bit uh, – I'd be remiss to say them. But USC is the team, team I was talking about. Uh, I think at Stanford and at Arizona should be very winnable games for them. So they do get a lot of home games when they matter. So that's going to be huge for them. If they are to pull out a, uh, an 8-4, and 9-3 and three shock kind of season with Cameron Ward having one hell of a year. Um, but I'm comfortable saying that this team is going to barely scrape the over. Uh, you know, I, I think this is a team that hits the six win mark and is just hits the six win mark. Uh, the other thing for me about this team in their in their schedule is where is the pocket? And what I mean by that is where is that like two to three game run where you just can say to yourself, they're going to roll through this. Now, the only one I see on the entire schedule is from November 5th through November 19th, where they play Stanford, Arizona State and Arizona. At that point, they may be able to do it and hit a and hit a run there. That's really late in the season to do it as well. Um, but if that's when you're doing it, you're probably just getting into a bowl game at that point. Uh, Washington State was okay on the transfer uh, on the recruiting trail this year, finishing 60th overall, 48th in the transfer rating. Much uh, you know carried by Cameron Ward going there, uh, who I think might be one of the highest, maybe the highest transfer we've talked about up onto this episode so far. Uh, it, you know, uh, being a 93 overall transfer total or transfer ranking, which will give him a low four-star, almost a five-star uh, transfer rating, uh, according to 247. So I'm excited to see what he does in that offense. I'm excited to see if he can really, you know, ch- change their fortunes. And if he is, he's going to be much watch TV. And, Scott, you can probably answer this question right now. Where is he being drafted in CFF? Uh, who is it? I'm sorry? Cameron Ward. Uh, Nick takes Cam Ward in every draft I've been in. <laughs> so, so that is, I mean, I'm, you're I'm talking about high on him. Where the hype is coming from, a lot of it is from Nick Allen. So uh, uh, I've seen that a four, fifth, or sixth round usually, but he's okay. high. there's certainly yeah. some folks who are pretty high on him. Uh, I think he's you know top twelve right now in our, our current rankings. So uh, definitely a high, high ceiling. Yeah, gotcha. yeah, very high ceiling for him. And like I said, Nick takes him in every draft I've been in with Nick. So uh, let's go over to 72, San Diego State. San Diego State beat Utah. They won the Mountain West West Division and capped its 12-2 and run. It's fifth season, uh, fifth 10-win season in seven years with a 38-24 win over UTSA in the Frisco Bowl. Uh, the highest win total we've seen so far in our team preview, seven and a half from DK. Uh, we have them at seven and five, so slightly under that seven and a half. Uh, Nick, last year the Aztecs were uh, shorthanded in the forty-six to thirteen loss to Utah State in the Mountain West uh, Conference Championship game. Uh, but they typically play great defense. It's the offense that doesn't give you much margin for error. They are getting a new QB in Braxton Burmeister. Is he going to inject some life into that unit in twenty twenty-two? I think it's possible, uh, and if he does. San Diego State might be an 11 and 1, I mean, 12 and 0 type team, right? Because uh, they're really only going to be a, a big time underdog against one opponent. That's Utah. Uh, right now we have it at two touchdowns, but they beat Utah last year. You know, that was maybe before Cam Rising got uh, sort of up to full speed and, and uh, sort of Utah found its rhythm, but that's still a winnable game. And then, you know, they host Arizona to start play Idaho state. Those are, are certainly uh, games where we expect San Diego state to be favored. The game against Toledo will be tough, but that's also at home where they have a new stadium, by the way, not having to bus two hours out of town for home games. So 
will, I think, get a little bit more of a home field advantage than they've been used to recently. And, you know, yeah, they will be underdogs on the road against Boise State and maybe, you know, Fresno State as well, who's their top uh, opponent in the West Division. But they're right now in our projections favored against everybody else. More often than not, it's by a touchdown or more. Uh, with a couple of toss-ups thrown in against teams like Air Force, Toledo, as I mentioned. Uh, that Nevada game, you know, pretty close, but we're probably a little too high on Nevada, and that's also uh, a bye week right after a bye week for San Diego State. So I would expect that that number will increase. But, yeah, I mean, you know, defensively, they are an excellent, excellent defense, have a uh, tremendous track record. The last three seasons, they've been – uh, in the top 10, they had the number one defensive team for rating in the country in 2020. Uh, they were top five in 2019. Last year, they slumped all the way to number eight. So, you know, an elite unit, at least it has been top 10 against the run last year, top 20 against the pass. And they lost some talented players. Uh, you know, Cameron Thomas was a third round pick, but still it, it's a, a team that, um, I think is, you know, got a proven track record. I can trust that they're going to play pretty solid defense. Part of the reason why they, uh, you know, we, we don't look at just raw numbers, so it's not like their slow or methodical offense is just keeping those uh, total offense, rushing offense yard totals low. That doesn't matter in our team performance ratings. We're looking at, you know, actual things like, uh, you know, against FBS opponents, garbage time filtered out, points per drive allowed, they were seventh. In yards per pass attempt, they were tenth. In success rate allowed, sixth. Tenth in EPA per play or PPA, you know, collegefootballdata.com, uh, uh, their, their PPA numbers, they were tenth. Yards per play allowed, ninth. So they are consistently solid. It's not just low yardage numbers. Uh, but, you know, even if they do play a little bit better on offense, a little more explosive, puts the defense on the field a little bit more, I feel relatively confident um, that guys like Patrick McMorris, Caden McDonald, Keyshawn Banks, Jonah Tavai, and they were pretty strategic in their uh, transfer portal, um, you know, guys that they brought in, project to be starters or major contributors, guys like Cooper McDonald, Justice Tavai, uh, Devin Lamp, you know, filling in holes on defense and then adding, uh, injecting some some talent, maybe some explosiveness, like a highly athletic quarterback like Braxton Burmeister, like one of the faster running backs in college football, Keenan Kristen, who hasn't played the last couple of years um, when he was at USC, uh, but, you know, has explosiveness, might be able to, to, you know, take over as that number one running back. Mark Redman was a four-star level tight end with an NFL type body, uh, you know, projects to play a lot starter on the offensive line. Most likely Cade Bennett transferring in uh, from the power five level was at Oklahoma state uh, prior to San Diego state. So yeah, I I think that there's a chance they're one of those teams that it's difficult to trust that they'll actually be able to get it done because they have been, you know, a pretty poor performing offense in recent years, dating back to Rocky Long's tenure there and and the last couple of years um, since he left. 
now under Brady Hoke. But um, I do think that, you know, by looking at the guys that they're bringing in the last couple of years and then Burmeister being kind of the, the biggest piece of that, um, there's potential that this offense could be a more dangerous unit. And if that defense doesn't take a big step back and, and you know, might not be a top 10 unit this year, uh, but if it's a top 25 unit and the, the offense moves from, you know, 89th and overall uh, offensive team performance to top 70, I mean, this could be another 12 win team and, and, you know, potentially even better. It, it, the ceiling for San Diego state is new year six bowl. Uh, I don't necessarily know that they will get there. And, and that might seem strange for me to say, because we are, uh, on the under seven and a half, you know, that margin for error, the way we projected is, is maybe a little too, uh, close, but this team has a really, really high ceiling. And if it clicks, you know, they, they could be in for a special season. Xavier, your thoughts on San Diego state. Do you think they can uh, get to that win total again, or do you think uh, you're more with the CFP winning edge numbers here? Nick hit me with the, well, he, I haven't called him out on podcast, but he hit, he finished with it this time. So I can say it. He hit me with the, if the, if, if all these pieces come together, it'll be a special season for them for the second year in a row. I'm just not, a, I'm not, certain that it will happen exactly like it was able to happen last year for them. Uh, first and foremost, you know, they were able to go and beat Utah last year, which I thought was, you know, an immense reason as to why they were able to run the table last year. Just that kind of confidence going into uh, Mountain West play last year. And what was, uh, I won't say a down Mountain West, but I feel like the, the competition just wasn't there as we've seen in previous years. Uh, there, are, So I think coming into this year, I'm going to say they're going to, they're going to swing a little bit lower than what they did last year. They have to see Boise State this year, which they didn't have to last year. They're also on the road. That'll be huge for them. Uh, I'm excited just to see if they're able to. If they're able to, it'll be because of the fact that they finally were able to put it together. When, I, when we talk about San Diego State, I think since we since the inauguration of this podcast, San Diego State's one of been, one, been one of those teams that we always talked about their defense. Last year, everything kind of came together, right? It's the same thing we talked about with Cal in last week's episode, which is if their offense comes together with how great their defense has been over the last couple years, it could be a special year. I'm not sure that's, that's going to happen again. And it's going to be on the back of Braxton Burmeister to make this offense go. Um, one of the major things with him is he just has to protect the football better. I think, you know, that's something that he has had struggles with in his time in college so far. Um, and obviously a quarterback that gives away the football is not a quarterback that can play college football for a very long time. So he's got to be able to fix his ball control issues. If he's able to do that, then, you know, so what Nick said, all bets are off. It's a possibility that they, you know, that they're able to run the table again in their respective conference. I'm just thinking that after last year, they're going to, you know, lose more non-conference games, which they'll lose to Utah uh, this year with it being at Utah. So that's going to be a major thing. Um, I'm excited to see what they do against Arizona first week of the season. I think that'll be a nice barometer game. You guys know how I love my barometer matchups for them going into this year, as we all think Arizona will be an improved team. Not saying they're going to be a good team, but an improved team. So it'll give San Diego State kind of a, uh, an early season test for them uh, to see what they may be like. If they go and beat Arizona by two or three touchdowns, it could be a long year for everybody in the in the Mountain West, maybe outside of Boise State. So this is a team I'm going to go still go with the over. I'm not I'm not going to go full-on pessimist and say they're going to go with the under. They're going to have a down year. I think this is still a team that goes with the over. I just can't sit here and say double-digit wins are going to be in their future. I'd say nine wins are a guarantee or something around a guarantee. I feel like eight or nine 
guarantee I'm not ready to go on that 10, 11, you know, win season again um, as a possible uh, goal for them this year. All right, last team up here, number 71, WKU Western Kentucky. Tyson Helton entered 2021 on the hot seat in WKU Open 1-4, and four, but his new-look roster gelled in time to win 8-9, of nine, beating App State in the bowl game and uh, losing only to UTSA in the Conference USA title game. Uh, DK has got them at, at you know our next highest total, the highest one yet, 8.5. We've got them at seven and six this year. So Nick WKU, they're going to be missing Bailey Zappi, who set all records. Jared Stearns is gone, and their offensive coordinator Zach Kitley is gone. Can we expect the Hilltoppers to make it back to the Conference USA title game in 2022? It's it's going to be a question of whether or not uh, Zach Kitley, Bailey Zappi, and Jared Stearns as a group. We're just a special group that that really kind of uh, spurred everything, or is it repeatable? Running the same system, you know, with a lot of the same pieces and a new face at quarterback. Looks like Jared Daigie's probably going to uh, be the starter, former starter at Bowling Green and West Virginia. They also brought in Austin Reed, who had a, a you know really strong track record at Division Two West Florida. Started twenty three games. There, there are some moving pieces at wide receiver, but a lot of talented guys return. Malachi Corley and Daywood Davis put up big numbers last year. weren't either of the top two guys, but you know Corley was a like a hundred reception type guy uh, on pace for that. Daywood Davis a little more big play, but they brought in some transfers to kind of round things out. Jalen Hall from Western Michigan, Michael Matheson from Akron. Here are good things about both. The offensive line was a elite unit last year ranked sixth in O-line performance. They bring back one all-conference performer in Quitavius Leslie, multiple starters, um, but it's going to be a little bit of a new look unit. But, you know, the play calling, they went to one of Kitley's right-hand guys uh, to, to keep the offense similar, close to the same, um, and, and you would expect there'll be some similar uh, rates and, and, you know, ratios for putting the ball in the air, and it's just, will they be able to execute? Or was it, you know, Kitley, Zappi, and and Stearns uh, that kind of made this offense go? Defensively, I think they're going to be in pretty good shape. The numbers didn't look great. Um, they were just barely inside the, the top 100 in overall defensive team performance, top 80, both against the pass and the run. But experience is not an issue. Every uh, 10 of 11 projected starters on defense are seniors. Uh, the only other one is a junior, and basically the the two deepest seniors are, are juniors as well. A lot of experience on that side of the ball, and though they do lose some impact players, guys like D'Angelo Malone, Jeremy Darvin, Antoine Kincaid, Demetrius Kane, um, and you know a transfer in, in Beanie Bishop who went to Minnesota, uh, I, I do still think that this is going to be uh, you know they're going to be able to hold serve on the defensive side of the ball. It's all going to be about the offense. They're probably going to take a little bit of a step back instead of being, you know, 11th in offensive team performance, top five passing. Will they be a top 25 offense, a top 40 offense? I think that's going to be the determining factor because, you know, last year's results uh, weigh pretty heavily, but we do have Western Kentucky favored in, nine regular season games. They do play 13. Uh, 
we have a lot of those as toss-ups. I think we'll know by the time we hit Conference USA play whether or not Jared Deggy or whoever's at quarterback is able to you know keep this offense going at, at a similar level. Um, I certainly think it's possible. Conference USA is, is wide open, as we said plenty before. Um, they could make it back to the title game. They could win it. Uh, but also, if, if things don't quite click, because that was just a special group last year offensively, you know, this is a team that could slump back down into the six and six or, or maybe even lower. And maybe uh, Tyson Helton will find himself on the hot seat again. There's a pretty wide range here, I think, for Western Kentucky. Xavier, your thoughts on WKU, um, you know, hard, hard to pick this team with so much leaving, but they didn't have that the year before. And they became incredible last year. So what do you think for the Hilltoppers? Yeah, I think this is Vegas getting a little bit in front of themselves and thinking that they could reincarnate, you know, redo what they did last year. I think Bailey Zappi being who he was and what they had around them is, I won't say a once in a lifetime type situation for a team like Western Kentucky, but you're just not going to get that same kind of replication, you know, in the offense. Now, Decky isn't a bad quarterback, but I don't think he's anywhere near the passer that we saw from, from Bailey Zappi last year. Uh, I don't think he even trends in that direction. That doesn't necessarily mean Western Kentucky won't win a ton of ball games this year. I also think their schedule this year is a little bit tougher, right? You have to see at Auburn at the end of the year uh, and then see at FAU in back-to-back matchups. That's not going to be an easy stretch right there at the last, you know, to finish your year off. And you didn't have Troy, then UTSA in back-to-back games too, the one team you lost to last year and a Troy team that we expect to be better. So, I think Western Kentucky is going to go with the under. I'm going to go with the under with them. Uh, that means they can still win eight games. I just don't see them, once again, putting another year together, you know, similarly to what I just said, you know, where they put together, you know, this immaculate year where they go on a run where they win, you know, eight in a row, six, seven in a row, excuse me. Uh, so I'm going to go with the under with WKU. I think they win eight games. I don't think it's going to be Tyson held on any kind of hot seat, but – this isn't a team that I think replicates the exact same team that they were last year, and especially with some of the defensive talent that they lost as well. This is a team that I feel like falls a little bit, but not into complete oblivion. All right. That is going to wrap it up for this week and the team previews. We'll be back next week. We're going to be getting into some higher-ranked teams here, some big-time win totals. We just had the two highest totals with those last two teams that we've seen from DK so far in this series. So make sure you're tuning in. Remember, you can follow us all on Twitter, at Bogman Sports for myself, at CFB Winning Edge for Nick, at Xavier underscore Trist, T-R-I-C-H-E for Xavier. And that is going to wrap it up for us. We will see you guys next week. Take it easy, everybody. Thank you to our Patreon supporters for keeping our show ad-free and for funding our wide range of college football analytics projects. Thanks also to Blake Austin for our theme music. To learn more about CFB Winning Edge, visit patreon.com slash CFB Winning Edge or follow us on Twitter at CFB Winning Edge.